The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Indeed, we gather here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org, with hands and voices lifted in praise of God. Today begins our National Summer Preacher Series, focusing around the theme of Darwin and faith in this year of the bicentennial of Darwin's birth and the sesquicentennial of the publication of his landmark on the origin of species. We welcome to the pulpit today the Reverend Dr. Wesley Wildman, Associate Professor of Theology and Ethics at the Boston University School of Theology, Director of LiberalEvangelical.org, and co-founder of the Institute for the Biocultural Study of Religion. Furthermore, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett and Mr. Justin Blackwell lead the Marsh Chapel Choir in music bringing out the theme of creation, especially selections from Haydn's oratorio, The Creation. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in many of the coming weeks, preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. As you are so moved, we would invite your participation in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name, for you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Let us be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. A lesson from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Let us pray verses from Psalm 8 with the Antiphon. Majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? mortals that you care for them. Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And now, beloved of God, rise up, in body as you are able, but certainly in heart, for the singing of the Gloria Dei, the reading of the Gospel, and the singing of our hymn. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Glory to you, O Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Mm -hmm. 
Please be seated. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I consider myself an evangelical Christian of the liberal sort, but I have many evangelical Christian relatives, friends, and students who are extremely conservative. Despite mutual respect, it appears that I have little in common with them theologically. My outlook on life and faith leaves me feeling dismayed by what strikes me as doctrinal and moral rigidity, appalled by their dismissal of the wisdom of other religions, and a little frightened by their willingness to vest absolute authority in allegedly plain reading of the Bible. But my self-righteous theological appraisal does not go unchallenged. From their point of view, I am disloyal to what they see as the supernaturally established tradition of the Christian faith, dangerously cavalier about the fragile moral fabric of society, and all too willing to besmirch the purity of divine revelation with arrogant reliance on human reason and experience. They wouldn't hesitate to declare with relief that they share little in common theologically with me too. Now at the personal level, this liberal conservative difference is manageable, so long as we don't have to resolve disagreements about biblical authority, so long as we care for one another, and so long as we remember to laugh at ourselves from time to time. At the cultural level, however, the liberal conservative difference has the proportions of an unbridgeable chasm, which makes it seem deadly serious. Often enough, it is a hateful and deadly disagreement. You know about the recent murder of late-term abortion provider Dr. George Tiller inside the Reformation Lutheran Church of Wichita, Kansas, as he prepared to welcome worshippers into the sanctuary and talked with a friend about taking his grandchildren to Disney World. This shows how deadly the disagreement can become. And there are many other disastrous consequences of religious hatred. Most fundamentalists and conservative evangelical groups decried Dr. Tiller's murder, but others, such as Reverend Fred Phelps's Westboro Baptist Church, said Dr. Tiller got what he deserved and even picketed his funeral. Meanwhile, a violent rhetoric that inspires extremists to act out their distorted heroic fantasies continues. Sometimes it seems that the United States is only a small step away from the religious violence that has been so disastrous between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland or between Sunnis and Shia in the Middle East. Such disagreements among religious people are sad and strange in some ways. After all, we do have a lot in common, including our love of children, our celebration of mothers and especially fathers today, our preference for peaceful neighbourhoods, our quest for health and happiness, and our conviction that life is best lived in relation to an ultimate reality that suffuses everyday events and transcends everyday concerns. But despite these shared life goals, mutual suspicion and hostility are very real. As I address this issue today, I will not take up the abortion controversy despite our painful awareness of Dr. Tiller's murder. Rather, I will focus on another front of the disagreement, namely the evolution wars. As far as I know, the evolution controversy has not produced fanatical murders, 
but it continues to be extremely painful and it surfaces the substantive disagreements clearly, as we shall see. Keep in mind that I am not addressing the wider secular versus religious debate over evolution. Rather, I'm speaking to a dispute among religious people, all of whom accept that the world is God's creation and thereafter have to undertake some serious navel-gazing to figure out whether and how to incorporate evolutionary theory into that basic conviction. I hope to demonstrate that each group of Christians has something valuable to learn from the other. The dispute among Christians over theological implications of evolution arises on the back of four deeper disagreements. So let's number them. First, we have conflicting views of reality. The conservative evangelical imaginative world is defined by a God who knows the world intimately, who cares about each one of us personally, who acts freely according to divine purposes, who answers our prayers in fatherly love when we ask in confident faith. The liberal evangelical imaginative world is defined by a God who is beyond measure and understanding, speaking from the whirlwind of creativity in ways that are sometimes difficult to comprehend. One God is scaled to human needs and interests and sits awkwardly with the vastness of the evolutionary process, while the other is vastly beyond every worldly agenda and suits evolution more naturally. Second, we have conflicting visions of authority. The conservative evangelical vests authority in definitive divine revelation expressed decisively through the Bible or the Pope or some other religious touchstone. The liberal evangelical vests authority in traditions of interpretation, accepting diversity, contradictions and struggles within those traditions as unavoidable and valuable. If evolution contradicts the authoritative revelation of the nature of God, then evolution is easily rejected for one side whereas the other side naturally seeks for a creative synthesis between evolution and ideas of God. Third, we have conflicting visions of history. The conservative evangelical regards culture and civilization and scientific discovery itself as the ambiguous stage for the drama of salvation, but never salvific in itself, and always subordinate to theological truth. The liberal evangelical sees history as a process of development that can be appreciated as a part of what salvation means and thus as able to challenge traditionally received theological beliefs. One side has little reason to respect scientific theories such as evolution if they contradict revealed truth, whereas the other side receives evolution as a magnificent divine revelation about the world that must be taken seriously no matter what theology says. Finally, we have conflicting visions of church. The conservative evangelical sees correctness of doctrine as a vital form of religious purity and will sacrifice church unity to protect it by expelling those who stubbornly resist the party line if necessary. Meanwhile, the liberal evangelical tries hard to tolerate doctrinal variations because certainty about such matters is held to be impossible and because unity of believers matters more than purity of beliefs. One side handles tension between God beliefs and evolution by rejecting evolution to protect doctrinal purity, while the other side minimizes the tension 
in the name of Christian unity and in hopes that God beliefs and evolution can somehow be reconciled. Well, a disagreement of major proportions then with deep conceptual roots, but let me be clear. In my view, conservative evangelicals who reject evolution in favour of creationism or who embrace the neo-creationism of intelligent design theory make a serious error in judgment. Yet, they understand what is theologically at stake in evolution far better than most of their liberal counterparts who casually resolve the issue by declaring that God creates through evolution without pausing to think through what that must mean. Charles Darwin, whose 200th birthday we celebrate this year, began his scholarly career as a convinced believer that God intentionally conceived, designed and created the world in roughly the form Darwin encountered it. As a young man, he read and accepted the still famous design arguments of his countryman, William Paley. After all, he couldn't explain the wondrous structure of the eye any other way. He had to assume a personal, benevolent, attentive and active designer God. As his studies widened and deepened, however, Darwin's theological views slowly shifted. Though he never discovered the DNA mechanism by which traits were transmitted across generations, he was confident that trait preservation and transmission occur and that random variations of traits make organisms more and less fit to survive the rigours of any given environment. He believed that this process of trait inheritance, random variation and natural selection in competitive environments is powerful enough to explain the origin of species, which is the name he gave to his most famous book published 150 years ago this year. And he assembled a formidable array of evidence to support his theory, evidence that is extraordinarily difficult to explain apart from the evolutionary hypothesis. He was an impressive dude. Unsurprisingly, Darwin's view of God changed as the secrets of the natural world opened before his uncanny gaze. God was no longer necessary to explain the particulars of the world and the details of its teeming life forms. Rather, God's domain was the creation of the potentialities of the world as a whole, a world that answered to the description that the theory of evolution provided. Unsurprisingly to Darwin, God gradually seemed less personal, less benevolent, less attentive and less active. Surely such a loving personal deity would have created in another way, a way that involved less trial and error, fewer false starts, less mindless chance, fewer tragic species extinctions, less dependence on random symbiotic collaborations, fewer pointless cruelties, and less reliance on predation to sort out the fit from the unfit. Darwin arguably never lost his faith in God. Rather, believing that God created through the evolutionary process, his growing knowledge of that process dramatically transformed his view of God. And this left him ill at ease with the anthropomorphic personal theism of his day and with friends and colleagues and family who believed in a personal, benevolent, attentive and active divine being. Christians and other theists who casually assert that God creates through evolution as if there is no theological problem with so speaking, 
should pause and consider Darwin's faith journey. Darwin was theologically more perceptive than many of his liberal endorsers. He knew that saying God creates through evolution puts enormous stress on belief in a personal, benevolent, attentive and active deity. Evolution casts a pall over the moral clarity that most people want to see in the God they worship and serve. Darwin felt the difficulty acutely. Many theologians since Darwin have struggled with the problem. Do you feel the challenge? Or do you casually blend evolutionary theory and belief in a personal, benevolent, attentive and active God as if there is no problem? Many of my conservative evangelical Christian brothers and sisters who reject evolutionary theory feel the problem Darwin felt. They instinctively grasp that their personal, benevolent, attentive and active God could not possibly have created the world as Darwin described it. Such a God would be morally unrecognisable to them, a kind of heartless gambler over the lives and well-being of Earth's creatures, and not at all like the loving and wise parent they trust and serve. This would contradict their morally clear and homey worldview, which is borne up by a God of pure compassion and perfect goodness. Because they take on authority the proposition that God is personal, benevolent, attentive and active, they know with confidence that Darwin must have been wrong. To see the power of this argument, consider C.S. Lewis's creation story. It is in a lesser-known volume of his Narnia Chronicles called The Magician's Nephew. The children in that story are present when the great lion Aslan creates Narnia and its creatures. The method of creation is beautifully intimate and personal. Aslan sings in a majestic voice with spectacularly complex undertones and rippling overtones and the world awakens around him. Each creature struggles up and out of the Narnian soil, awakening to a new world, personally called into being by the fatherly lion God himself. I find the story enormously moving. You see, C.S. Lewis grasped the point that Darwin also felt so forcefully. The God Lewis believed in could not create in a way very much different than Aslan did. Good literature is able to test the coherence of the God-creates-through-evolution idea. So long as God is conceived as a personal, benevolent, attentive and active being, somewhat like a slam, the literary acid test shows that God cannot and would not create through evolution. They just don't fit. Conservative evangelical Christians who resist evolutionary theory for theological reasons are shrewdly targeting a problem for their God-infused worldview, perhaps the sharpest problem that worldview has ever faced. They are not tiptoeing around, pretending that the God they trust every day somehow creates through evolution. They feel the contradiction and just say no to evolution. I admire that. I too feel the dilemma they feel. 
since a personal, benevolent, attentive and active Aslan-like deity cannot create through evolution, either that God or evolution must go. Unlike them, however, I am not in any doubt about the exceptional robustness of the theory of evolution. It is as stable a scientific theory as the atomic theory of matter. For me, therefore, the choice leads to a different conclusion. God the Creator simply cannot be like Aslan, cannot be a personal, benevolent, attentive and active deity. We can preserve those affirmations symbolically and poetically in prayer and in music and in spirituality, but they do not finally refer to a divine being up there somewhere with intentions and awareness, with feelings and intelligence, with plans and powers to act. Rather, they refer to the ground of being itself, to the creative and fecund power sources in the depths of nature, to the value structures and potentialities that the world manifests. They refer to the God beyond God, which is to say the truly ultimate reality that hovers behind and beneath and beyond the symbolic gods we create and deploy to satisfy our personal needs, to make sense of our world and to legitimate the exercise of social control. Now you may be surprised to hear me praising the theological perceptiveness of the conservative evangelical resistance to evolutionary theory while also praising evolutionary theory itself. And you may be taken aback by my affirmation of the God beyond God because of its associated critique of more popular views of God as a personal, benevolent, attentive and active being. I speak to you this way, however, not to convince you to agree with me about God. I understand that this may be a bit of a stretch for most people. Rather, my aim is to convince you that there is a big problem trying to fit popular personal theism together with evolutionary theory a bigger problem than many Christian believers and even many theologians are ready to admit. Ironically, it is the conservative evangelicals who resist evolutionary theory that really grasp this point. They believe in a God who could only create the world in something like the way Aslan creates Narnia. But Darwin showed us a different world. That scientific revelation demands not atheism, not for Darwin, and not for us today either, but a different conception of the divine. You may not think it is necessary to embrace my solution to that problem, but I am confident that we will never understand the real passion and coherence of the religious anti-evolution position until we grasp the problem that evolutionary theory poses for personal theism. The luminous Narnian creation story helps to confirm what evolutionary theory shows us namely that God did not create that way. It also helps us grasp why a personal, benevolent, attentive and active divine being could not and would not create through evolution. One of our readings has God interrogate Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Well, we were nowhere to be found, so we have to approach these matters with humility. But that does not mean we should be casual in our theological reasoning. Our readings from Psalm 8 and John's Gospel set examples for us of careful thinking about the meaning of creation, and we should do the same. Conservative evangelical anti-evolutionists and neo-creationist ID believers detect 
the inconsistency and are willing to protect their homey worldview at any cost, even if it means rejecting a scientific theory as well supported as evolution and the attendant migration into a cultural backwater where people who don't get what is at stake make fun of them. Are you as careful and consistent as they are? Are you willing to pay the price they pay? Do you believe in a God who would and could create the world in the way Aslan created Narnia? Such a God could not and would not and did not create the world evolutionary theory shows us. So how do you resolve the theological puzzle? When God speaks to you from the evolutionary whirlwind, do you hear a personal, benevolent, attentive and active divine being addressing you soul to soul? Or do you hear the abysmal ground of being rumbling in fecund creativity, morally impenetrable, imponderably beautiful, closer to us than our jugular vein, defying rational grasp? My spirituality is tuned to the latter conception, to the God beyond all gods, so I can afford to acknowledge the theological perceptiveness of my conservative evangelical anti-evolutionist brothers and sisters. What about you? What sort of God could, would and did create the world through evolution? In this year of Darwin anniversaries, we owe the great man nothing less than careful reflection on this question, which so haunted him. And to the God who speaks to us from the whirlwind, demanding to know where we were when the foundations of the earth were laid, we owe our very best efforts to absorb what is revealed to us about the world we inhabit and to incorporate that into our faith journeys as honestly and consistently as we can. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for prayer, I invite you to stand, sit, or come forward to kneel at the altar rail if it is your tradition to do so. Now let us sing together the call to prayer, hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Father, I am. You know, we know you are, just as you have been, and just as you will be. 
for your ever-present love and faithfulness. We offer thanksgiving and praise to you, Holy Father. Gracious Father, we are thankful for the bounty of blessings too numerous to enumerate. We thank you that we are able to worship together as an extended community. We are thankful for the refreshing rain, as well as the warm sunshine, the cycle of the seasons, and the respite of summer. We are thankful that you are a patient and compassionate Father, for no matter how many times we have sinned, you have never retracted the opportunity for redemption. We thank you, Father. Again, we confess our sins and humbly ask for your forgiveness. As we ask for your pardon, we pray that we grow as Christians. We open our hearts to you, Holy Spirit, and pray that we may become more compassionate and forgiving towards others. As wars and violent conflicts continue around the world, intolerance and hatred in this country is stoked and spread. Terrorists execute their tactics, and governments ignore the needs of their people and instead focus on the needs for making war we pray for peace. Comfort those who are caught in the crossfire. We thank you for the courage and dedication of our troops and first responders, and we ask you to provide the peace of your presence to them and their loved ones. We pray for our country's leaders, as well as the leaders throughout the world. Touch their hearts and renew their spirits to work together to make progress towards peace. On this third Sunday in June, which is dedicated as Father's Day, we reflect and are grateful for the men who have had a positive influence in our lives. We thank you not only for our biological fathers and grandfathers, we thank you for stepfathers, foster fathers, big brothers, neighbors, teachers, and friends. We thank you for those who lovingly encouraged and disciplined us taught us to respect ourselves and others, and taught us about you. Thank you for fathers who set an example by doing what is good. We pray for all parents, mothers as well as fathers. Bless them with the patience and wisdom to deal with the challenges of raising children in the world today. Provide comfort to the sick and the lost and help those in need. As we ask these things, we pray that we will recognize and willingly accept our role in fulfilling these requests. As we mourn the recent or imminent death of loved ones or face our own deaths, we pray for the confidence of Paul, who looked forward to the transition to his eternal home with the Lord. Hear our prayers, loving Father, for we ask all of these things in the name of the true light, Jesus Christ, and pray as he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We welcome you here to Marsh Chapel this morning and hope that you will join us following the service to greet Dr. Wildman and give thanks for his word to us this morning. We do invite you to come downstairs for coffee hour following the service today. We would note that uh, next week, the Reverend Dr. Robert Cummings Neville, former Dean of Marsh Chapel, will be returning to us to bear the second message of our Darwin Summer Preacher Series. We hope you'll keep an eye toward the Marsh Chapel website for upcoming events and uh, also the opportunity there, especially for our listening audience, for online giving. And we hope that those of you present in our nave this morning will take the opportunity to fill out the Red Book at the end of your pews, the Ritual of Friendship, so that we might get to know one another better. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
offer these gifts in great thanks for your love, the love that we experience in our community, in our families, and in our friendships. Just as your love inspires us to become greater than who we already are, we pray that these gifts will stand as a reflection of our love for one another and our work in your kingdom here on earth. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.
us remember that life is short, and we do not have too much time to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us. So be swift to love, and make haste to be kind. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit abide and remain with you always. Amen. <laughs>